0: Hello, and welcome again to Fat-Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall.
1: And I'm Kamala Lopez-Dawson. And we're sitting here with Jackie Lee, the vice president of sales for a company called Company 3, or CO3, that specializes in color correction and digital intermediates. Um, it's an area of post-production that is becoming more and more relevant um, as the technology of film um, speeds up and becomes more complicated. And um, we're very happy to have her here. Thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you um, tell us something about this company and what, it, what kinds of films it handles? Does it uh, handle commercials also? What do you generally get in here?
2: Company Three has uh, it began. Um, Stefan Sonnenfeld started Company Three around ten years ago, I would say, and it began um, primarily as a uh, telecine house for video, uh, music videos, and commercials. Um, and then it's grown since then. And he started his feature department, and that officially opened at the beginning of 05... And since then, um, Company 3 Features, which specializes in digital intermediates, have done around 30 titles of digital intermediates. And we do everything from the small indie films to the huge studio films. So we've done... The big films this year for us was, uh, were uh, Mission Impossible 3... Uh, X Men Three, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean Two, uh, Invincible for Disney. Uh, we did Miami Vice for Michael Mann. Uh, also, something that came out this year was Gridiron Gang uh, for Sony, Underworld Evolution, um, and then we've done you know many little films in between as well.
1: When I made my first film, I did it on 35 and I remember that I went in to visit with a colorist mm-hmm. at a lab and we sat there and we looked at my film print and we went over it and you know we discussed it and it was, um, it was a very small thing and he would call me in and I'd go back in and look at another version and so on and so forth and that was uh, what it was like coloring a little film on 35 I mm-hmm. recall. Mm-hmm. I'm finishing a short film right now that I shot on a high-definition video, mm-hmm. and the color correction process is completely um, digital now. So I'm in a suite. It's called Fire, right, Justin? Da Vinci. Oh, I'm in the Da Vinci suite, and we're looking at these little scopes and circles and graphs and looking at um, uh, peaking and crushing and this sort of thing, and it seems... It seems extremely complex to me, do you think you could maybe break down for us what um, what you do to color correct a film when you first walk into a suite like that?
2: Well, the filmmaking process for company three we because our specialty is color correction, we color correct in many uh, you know at different times of the process, uh, for instance, we color correct in the dailies process so when we do the initial transfer when we do the initial film to video transfer the telecine transfer we uh we have a best light then so we color correct your dailies at that stage and we think that that's really important because you are going to be living with that footage in the avid for you know for months that you're cutting your film so it's important that uh, the people that are working with it, whether it be the editor or the director or whoever else, they get used to a particular look because they've been watching it for months and months and months. So that's important. So we colour correct in a daily uh, process. We then recolor correct or add to the colour correction when you do your preview. Uh, so What's so preview? So a preview, it can be an audience preview or a preview for a particular studio that's buying your film. Um, at that stage, you want to tidy it up so that whoever's seeing your film, whether it be a, a potential studio that's going to buy it or uh, you know, a, an audience that you're testing, um, you want it to be fairly even um, and you don't, you, know, you don't want any kind of glaring things that, that jump out at you. Um, so we color correct at that stage as well. And then when we do the, inter, uh, the digital intermediate, we color correct from the raw scans or from the HD uh, dailies masters if, if, you're doing, if you're going down an HD route.
1: And what about when you go back to 35?
2: When we go back, when, when you do a digital intermediate, it's um, a little bit different from, from the two processes that you've been through. So the first process when you shot your film originally on 35mm, you went through the optical process, which, um, and you finished your film at the lab. So color timing in that scenario is fairly slow because it has to go through a chemical process. So you'll color time, you'll tweak, and then the next day you'll see the results after it's gone through the lab process. Colour timing in a digital intermediate room is instantaneous. Um, <clears throat> so what happens uh, in a digital intermediate process if you're dealing with film, is that we scan the film, whether it be at 2K or 4K, and we try to scan the film and leave it with the maximum um, latitude that the original f- negative has. Okay? So then we conform the films, i.e. we online it so that it's in the conform state when we go into the colour correction suite. When we go into the colour correction suite, everything is there in your finished film format, i.e. it's in that edit. So you can colour correct seeing the scene before and the scene after. So you know how that colour correction is going to flow and if it's going to balance out. and the color correction that we apply at that stage onto the the 2K data is instantaneous. So, you know, you're color correcting or you're putting multiple layers of windows up, you're doing primary or secondary or, you know, windowing, and it's instantaneous. You can see what it's gonna look like instantaneously. But is that how it will look on 35? It is exactly how it's going to look on 35 that is the essence of a good digital intermediate and wherever you get your digital intermediate done um, whether it be here or at one of our competitors what you need to ask for is that proof you need to see that proof you need to see that what you're color correcting in the digital intermediate theater is exactly what it's going to look like on print at Company 3, what we do to give you that confidence is we'll, we'll test it or when you do your actual colour correction in your film, we will put up a butterfly test, what we call a butterfly test. So therefore you can see the colour corrected data and the film print side by side. Um, and then you can see then and you can judge for yourself that it's exactly the same.
1: What is that phrase that I, that I keep hearing? Is it loft or what is that that thing that um, Don at Image was t- talking?
2: Look up tables, but there's LUTs. an acronym. Yes, LUTs. LUTs. so LUTs, L L-U-T. U um, T. So that's a lookup table, basically. So a lookup table or your LUT is something that you apply to the way that you are monitoring your color correction. So a LUT. Or a lookup table can be applied either to a monitor or a projection, depending on how you're color correcting your film. What that means is that you're applying a lookup table to that projection system so that you can see what that's going to look like at the end when it comes out on print. Um, I'm just trying to explain it simpler. Uh, is it because the various projectors project things yes. differently? exactly, exactly. So everything, I mean, if you see the same image on your television at home and you see the same image on my television at home, it's going to look different because neither of them have been calibrated to each other. So everybody's, everybody's going to see it on different mediums and from, from theatre to theatre, it's going to look differently, different. So what we do in, in color correction or in the digital intermediate world is we apply a lookup table to the monitor that we're color correcting on or to the projection system that we're color correcting on. Um, and that way, that for, for us here at Company 3, we use a true light system. So what that means is we can dial in a particular lookup table. So. We can say, okay, we're going to colour correct here at Company 3, and then we're going to record out at a certain facility, and then we're going to use a certain lab. So because we know what that record out is going to look like and what that um, particular bath is going to look like from from a lab, we can basically dial that in so that we can see what the picture is going to look like if it goes through this particular process.
0: So the LUT
1: keeps things consistent when yes. you move from one arena to another.
2: Yes. Well, it allows you to it allows you to preview what is going to be the ultimate result
1: as you're doing it.
2: As you're doing it. Exactly.
1: Thank
0: you. Well, Company Three is home to one of the world's best colorists, uh, yes. Stefan Sonnenfeld. Yes. Now um can you tell me something about his uh history as far as being a colorist because um I look at the films that he's done some films for Michael Mann mm-hmm. uh, uh, Tony Scott mm-hmm. there's a there's a look to them that is uh unique mm-hmm. and I think it's kind of pushing the edge of, of color correction. Uh, one particular film that really stood out to me was this film called Domino. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had a completely different look to it. Uh, you were telling us it was shot on many different mediums. Um, how important is the colorist now in the filmmaking process? And um, how early on do they start looking at how they're going to color these kind of films?
2: They start looking at, and and a clever filmmaker would, a clever filmmaker or or an inexperienced filmmaker would start looking at the colour correction, how he wants his film to look overall at the very beginning of his film, i.e. before he even starts shooting. So we run, we will do tests with the director prior to him starting principal photography. Um, So Tony, you know, Tony Scott or whoever the director is will have, um, you know, an idea of what they want it to look like and they will shoot several tests and they'll have experimentation and they will go through the lab process and, you know, they might do a skip bleach or a, a... Bleach bypass or whatever process they're what going is through. A bleach bypass.
0: I always hear that, and I, I've seen films where I think, well, that must be a bleach bypass, uh, like Three Kings and uh, uh, Domino and, and uh,
2: Munich parts of Munich. Munich. Munich.
0: What is that exactly? What is that process?
2: It's a lab process where they where they literally skip the skip the bleaching, um, you know, part of the process. Because when you when you develop film, you uh, you know, you're putting it in various Baths of chemicals. Um, now, that I'm not an expert in, in that field, so mm-hmm. I can't um, answer that question perfectly, but it is a process where, you know, where they'll go through at the lab or um, they will shoot a certain negative stock um, and it'll give you that particular look. It's high contrast, um, you know. Um, and as far as how important the colorist is in that process um, I think it's important in the way it, it, it's good to discuss the look that you want to uh, have upfront with the colorist so that they have that in mind number one um, and then you know he can help control that look because the the, the chemical process is not Exact, necessarily. So, different film on different days is gonna uh, they're gonna look different. Um, so, in a digital intermediate world, you can control that or you can balance that out.
0: How difficult is it with all these different aspect ratios and different cameras that people are filming on, and film and digital and high definition and all these different things? How difficult is that to manage? Uh, what comes in here, and then to try and make some kind of a workflow out of it, it seems like it must be um, a big job to try and keep up with all the different technology. How does your company handle that?
2: We have um, you know a, a big engineering team, well, not a big engineering team but but uh, you know a, a very intelligent engineering team, I guess. Um, our head engineer, Mike Shido, is you know, definitely one of the top in his field um, and he has very strict controls of um, how our theatres are calibrated and he's at the forefront of, of, of learning new technology. Um, we definitely do have to keep up with new cameras um, and the results of those new cameras but we're lucky in a way because, you know, the suppliers of those, of those products will, will educate us whenever they can. And then we will see tests because, um, you know, we have an access to um, loads of different DPs that come in and out of, of this facility, whether they shoot music videos or commercials or films. And um, they will bring us whatever they've shot, on whatever camera. Um, so we have the opportunity to see that uh, very early on and see the results of each camera very early on, results of each format very early on. Um, and that's important because you need to, um, you know, you need to know the advantages and disadvantages of, of, of each format that you're shooting. And when you're mixing formats, um, it's important to have a good team of engineers or a good team of of conform artists which we have here that are very technically knowledgeable so that they know how to basically stitch all those formats together and and make it look as balanced or as even as as the filmmaker wants it to look. I mean obviously some filmmakers shoot different formats in different parts of their films because they want it to look different and and others shoot different formats because of different conditions like maybe you're shooting i mean we did a we did a movie um you know five called the cave they shot all of their underwater sequences on hd because it's going to be much easier for them uh... you know in that environment to shoot hd they have a longer tape so they can shoot for longer um, They don't have to come up and and change, you know, roles of film every 20 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, so there's, there's different reasons why a a director or filmmaker would shoot different formats, um, including budget as well, you know, um, you know, you may only be able to afford to shoot some parts of your film on film, um, because you're trying to save on film. so you, you may pick the most important parts to you or you might pick the parts that you need the greatest latitude in colour or, you know, whatever the case may be, or parts that you don't think that HD will hold up in that in that particular scene, whether it be, you know, an, a day exterior or, you know, whatever the case may be. So... Um, It's really important to go to a facility, in that case if you're shooting multiple formats, to go to a facility that has uh, experienced online artists um, that can stitch that together and and make it look uh, as even as you need it to be. You don't want to have a film, especially different aspect ratios, you don't want to have film that is changing in sizes, you know, and stuff like that throughout the film.
1: Now, what kind of a budget can an independent filmmaker expect to set aside from their overall budget to handle this aspect of post-production? Is there a percentage that we could
2: suggest? I don't know about a percentage. Uh, it really varies from film to film, and that's a very hard question to answer, and it's something that, that everybody asks, you know, continually asking me. I would say the best thing to do when you're putting together your budget is to go and speak to a post production facility, tell them about your script, tell them about your film, tell them how you 're going to treat certain scenes um, because everybody will read a, a script and get a different you know different story out of it, so you know they won't know if you're planning to shoot that um on set or whether that's supposed to be 3D or supposed to be composited or supposed to be a special effect or you know what it is so give them a breakdown of your script tell them you know as much as you can about your storyline how you envision your film to be and get their advice that way and it's and it's you know it's it's a good thing to work with a post-production facility early on um you know get someone that you trust someone that you have a good feeling with and because I, I think that all of the post facility the, these days are, you know, can, can output good product. Um, so it's about finding the group of people that you want to work with, that you, because you're making an independent film, you're really trusting somebody with your baby. So you know, find people that you like working with, that you can trust, and, and have them be part of your process all the way through, from start to end.
0: seems right right now, as an independent filmmaker, your options, because you can't go out and buy a DaVinci Suite, Mm -hmm. uh, your options are either to work with Final Cut Pro and the color correction, limited color correction it has there. Uh, Maybe you're lucky enough to get a copy of Final Touch, which allows you to do some colorization. Um, Or you can maybe talk somebody into um, helping you out with their DaVinci Suite. DaVinci Suite is, is... very, very expensive from what I understand. Yes. Um, it And so do you guys work with independent filmmakers who maybe don't have a huge budget? Do you uh, help them out, or, or does Stefan help them out?
2: We do help some um, independent filmmakers out. We have in the past, mm-hmm. and I think that we will continue to support the independent film um, market by helping certain uh, shows out I mean obviously we can't help everybody um, so we will pick and choose you know the films that that ha- that we happen to have a feeling about or that we get attached to or I don't know there's many different ways of getting attached onto a film I think um, uh, so I, I can't tell you a criteria uh, for that Apart from the fact that I do get a lot of calls from independent films, and some of them I can help, and some of them, unfortunately, I can't at the time for whatever reason. Um, But I guess that's just the way it goes. But, you know, someone is going to help you somewhere along the line.
1: I have a question about um, shooting HD. Um, I was listening to another podcast this week, and they were talking about how if you're not, if your monitor, Um, is not right or you're not seeing things exactly properly, you could be shooting... And going, um, what is the word, when you go too high on your whites or, you know, you, you could be off the proper scales mm-hmm. and they have, um, there's some new product coming out where you'll be able to actually see the little wheel and see where you are in it. But if, if that's not available, how do you, when you're shooting HD on a set, how do you monitor your color so that you
2: know that you're not, when you go to your DM. You're Di- not crushing your blacks yeah. or yeah. your whites. Um, you have to have problem monitors. They're, you know, that is something that you can't skip on. You can't skip on that. I mean, I wouldn't skip on that if I was shooting HD on, on an independent film. That is, that is a necessary item. Um, the fact that you're shooting HD is going to give you a lot of financial... Uh, you know, a lot of financial advantages, and, and breathing room, but you don't want to end up at the end of your principal photography with footage that you can't do anything with. So that is a necessary item when you're shooting HD. And, and,
1: and I have found out it's an extremely expensive item as well. That HD monitor, that 20 inch HD monitor is the, the line item on my budget for that. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, it's a monitor. And they're like, yeah, but that's what it is. Can you tell
0: us what that means, crushing the blacks?
2: Um, there is a legal standard uh, of, of color for mm-hmm. video. It goes from zero to 100. And if you are coming below or over that, that's the term that, that we use. Um, You're crushing the blacks or or whites or you're coming, you know, too far under or too far over. And that means that your particular video that you've shot is not within the legal limitations, which means that it could be rejected by some broadcasters. Um, Does it affect the way it looks?
1: Yeah. In what
2: way? Um, Gosh, I can't... I'm you know, i not the right person to explain that that answer um, it does affect the way it looks within the color space um, some people will be able to see that with their naked eye some people will not be able to see that with their naked eye that is why you have the scopes
0: Justin can you explain that to us a little bit
1: essentially what happens is you end up losing data in the video by going too far so you're you have, like she was saying, you have a blackest black that you can have in video that's legal. Anything past that's not going to be any blacker. That's as black as it could be. So what the look tends up being is you just see blotches of black and there's no, you can't tell any detail and there's no detail in the shadows. Or the same thing with the whites and the other spectrum. It's just after that point, it stops, it just starts being white, everything after that. So you could, if you really screwed up your image, you could have a full white field image if you pushed it all the way. Obviously, you don't want to do that, and that's an extreme example, but... That's essentially what happens. You just, there's, you just lose all your data in the tape, and there's nothing to work with left once you get to post.
0: Now, oftentimes, I'll see a film that looks like all the whites are like blown out. Do people go to extremes in their scopes because they want to, and just to create a certain kind of a look? Is that generally what, what we're looking at when well, we see
1: something? I, I think Michael Mann did that in Miami Vice, for sure. There were elements of that going on, and I think that it clearly was a stylistic...
2: Choice. Everything that Michael Mann did, I mean, and how you know how Miami Vice turned out, or the way it looked, is exactly how he wanted it. So everything that that is Miami Vice was definitely his choice. Um, so it's it's a certain way that he wanted to look, and however he got to that look was the path he wanted to take. Um, apart from that, I can't comment on. Mm-hmm. On anything else about that? Well, I think we're at
0: the end of the show here, and uh, we're at the film bite section. And so, uh, this is a section where we give a little bit of advice to filmmakers out there, um, if we happen to want to. Jackie, do you have one?
2: Um, I would say start post early. It's, it's really no longer post-production. Don't think about it after the fact. Start it early. Start it in pre-production. Talk to a post-company. Talk to them about your vision. Talk to them about how you want your film to look. And um, and take their advice, you know, what whatever advice they may have for you. They are at the forefront of what they do, so they should be able to tell you what results you'll get um, in, in, in the choices that you've made to shoot, whether it be your format choices or, you know, your film stock choices or whatever.
0: Yeah. My uh, film bite is to let people know what you're doing so that um, if somebody can help you out, they can. If they don't know what you're doing, they can't help <laughs> you. So, uh, I, like Jackie was saying, you know, okay, maybe this is a huge you know, post-production house, and maybe maybe they they don't care what you're doing but let them know so that in fact you know they might say hey this is a really great project we want to help you out in some way
1: yeah and you know the independent filmmaker today is the studio filmmaker of tomorrow and we everybody knows that so thank you so much for speaking with us today it really was a pleasure and i learned a great
0: deal that's going to be very useful to me very soon <laughs> so
1: okay. thank you right.
0: thank you All right, and if you have any questions for us or for Jackie, you can email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com or camilla at fatfreefilm.com.
2: And what's your website here? It is um, www.company3.com. Great. Thank you.
0: See you next week.